Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. <laughs> Hi, I have the legendary Burl Bear, True Crime Uncensored, co-host Mark C.G. Boyer, produced by Magic Matt Allen. I don't know if you heard uh, the previous show we did earlier with Dan Lawton, author of the uh, highly praised book, Above the Ground. Uh, being as you're a true crime fan, and I know uh, many of you are thinking of, gee, I'd like to write a true crime book. I could probably do that. You don't know what the hell you're up against. <laughs> and uh, I think a great example of someone we can learn from is Dan Lawton. Oh, great to hear great to hear your voice, and Mark, yours too. Well, um, thank you very much. Thanks for having me back on. Well, you're one of the few people ever to say that to Mark. <laughs> and uh, He's going to put that in his diary. Let's do the setup here. You have decided that you're going to do a book about this incredible case, one of the most complex, fascinating cases in the history of... Uh, International true crime. The 20 years to exonerate this man wrongly convicted of a brutal murder in Ireland. And you decide you're going to write a book. Tell us what it was like from beginning to publication to go through that process, never having done it before. It was a process. I had to get the rights from my subject. That took some time and some negotiation. And then once I got the rights, I had to produce the book within the period of time that we had agreed to, it was important to me that um, the true story be told. If there were inconvenient facts, or if I should find out that he, Kevin Berryart, was guilty of this murder, that I was going to write that. In other words, it was going to be no holds barred, and I was going to follow the, the story to wherever it led. But as you said, Burl, I had never done this before. I was a novice. Uh, I didn't really know what I was doing. I had uh, really no idea how to get going. So I thought a good thing to do would be to talk to some people who had done it before, successful writers. And I cold called them or cold emailed them. Um, people like Joseph Wambaugh, for example, who lives here in San Diego, who uh, wrote a series of novels that were based in the LAPD. He'd been an LAPD officer before he became a full-time writer. And I found, to my present surprise, that there was a lot of generosity there. Uh, none of these writers knew me, but they wanted to give me the benefit of some of their wisdom, and I took full advantage of that. I tried to pick their brains as best I could without uh, wearing out my welcome. Mm -hmm. And then I created a research plan. Um, I went up to Morrison and Forrester in San Francisco, and I got permission to look at the trove of materials that they had accumulated over eight years of litigation, representing Kevin Barry Art in a case involving a murder in Northern Ireland in 1978. There were 125 banker's boxes. Wow. They put them in a conference room for me, and I remember walking into that room and just seeing 125 banker's boxes and saying to myself, you know, okay, self, what, what do you do now? Uh, where do you start? <laughs> where um, do you start? Well, you, and, uh, excuse me, you at least had a slight, if not a leg up, at least a couple of toes up. Having been an attorney, you had to do some degree of research before. Uh, that's true. I remember one of the first document review assignments that I was sent on. I used to work in a in a big law firm when I was starting out. And they sent me to a, a warehouse. And there were 2,000 boxes in that warehouse. Oh and, uh, and, a, and a vehicle, as I remember. I don't know why the car was residing in the same warehouses, these thousands of boxes of documents. 
And uh, that's an idea about how to attack it. You create a file level index and then you go, you know, through um, those files. But I thought it was important to do the Robert Caro thing. Robert Caro, the biographer of Lyndon Johnson and the author of the great biography of Robert Moses, um, who said, you've got to turn every page. You absolutely got to turn every page. And that may take you months or years. Uh, and I felt that I had to do that, and I did it. Uh, I traveled to Northern Ireland several times. I needed full time to do it. I had to put my law practice on hold. I let my employees go, um, and I gave myself to this project for 16 months. I planned financially as best I could, and I figured I was going to run out of money at some point. That point maybe would be about 14 to 16 months from when I got going, um, but I would break it down into these different categories. Number one, documents. You know, if you're dealing with a crime, there are going to be police records, police photographs. Uh, if the case has gone to trial, there are going to be transcripts. Reading all that stuff and getting it organized. Uh, now, for me, that meant scanning the documents that were important, uh, being over-inclusive, and then making that trove of stuff word searchable. Very important because on a given day, if you're writing a chapter, uh, you're looking for a word. Maybe the word is um, revolver or blood or, you know, pick your term. And um, if you can do a word search quickly, that can be a great time saver later. The second aspect of it is witnesses. Um, interviewing, identifying the people that you absolutely have to talk to and putting them on a spreadsheet along with their contact information and how you think they fit into the story and then seeing if you can get in front of them and interview them. And not everybody is going to cooperate, especially right. in a case involving a crime. Um, but you've got to, and some of them are going to be dead and gone. Some of them are going to be uncontactable. A lot of them are not going to want to cooperate with you. Um, in my case, I felt when it came to some Irish witnesses, I needed a local connection. I needed a local manager. I was an American. I was an outsider. And there was deep distrust, I think. There is deep distrust of American writers in Northern Ireland because there was a project called the Boston College Tapes in which um, tape recordings were made of interviews of former IRA men and the subjects were promised that the tapes were going to be kept secret until after they had died. But someone in law enforcement found out that these tapes existed. They subpoenaed Boston College for them, and a judge ordered them produced, and these tapes wound up in the hands of law enforcement. So that incident... Yeah, that would be a real trust violation right there. Yeah, and it... it I think really resonated, it coincided with the period of time in which I was trying to do my research. But I had the good fortune of um, some relationships. Kevin Berryart, you know, still had family and some friends over there that could persuade, could be persuaded to sit down with me. And Patrick Radden Keefe uh, has written a couple of just powerhouse nonfiction books lately. The first one, Say Nothing, in 2019, which is a trouble story about the killing of Gene McConville by the IRA, and the other one, Empire of Pain, about the Sackler family and the opioid crisis. He, citing scene again, you know, the kindness of writers really impresses me. Um, I'm in one profession, the law profession, in which there are a lot of people that aren't 
very nice a lot of the time. <laughs> yes, yes. But I, I found among writers, there's a real niceness, uh, a real, you know, plenitude of that, and I benefited from it. So Patrick, uh, out of the goodness of his heart, put me in touch with a former IRA man who's now a, a writer and a historian named Anthony McIntyre, and he was, you know, very generous with his time and very uh, candid with me. So if you're doing those witness interviews and you have allies, that, that to me is essential. I had the benefit of research assistance. I had built into my budget wages uh, to be paid to part-time research assistants who could hunt down photographs, get licenses for photographs so I could use them in my book, who could um, hunt down secondary sources. Um, and then I would say the last fact that the last aspect of it, other than document control, witness interviews, is go to the scene. Go to where it happened. Look at the house, you know, in my instance. Look at the exact spot where Albert Miles was shot down in front of his wife and son on that night in November 1978. I went to every house and every apartment where Kevin Berryard had lived. I went to his birthplace. I mean, nothing really essential to the story happened at his birthplace, which was a convent uh, out in a rural area in um, in uh, County Westmeath in the Republic of Ireland. But I just felt I had to go and uh, photograph it. Uh, so if you have the good fortune to be in a position to afford to do all of that and have the time to do it, to me, those were the minimum building blocks I needed to be able to tell this story or have a chance of telling it. It would have been honestly. very difficult, if not impossible, for you to do the degree of work you did had you not had the resources. Mark Boyer has a question. So um, we're talking maybe 90 boxes of documentation overall? About 125. Okay. Of original. Just, um, yeah. just for the edification of the audience, how did you scan all of these documents to get them digitized, and then what did you use to convert them to uh, searchable text? What OCR did you use? The copy center at Morrison and Forster, uh, I asked to scan all the material that I listed on an index that I prepared of everything that was in those 125 boxes. They asked me if I wanted it word searchable. I said yes. Uh, they did it. <laughs> Yay. And, were you a lucky man? Wow. I was pretty lucky. Uh, man, two were weeks you later, ever? I got a disc uh, with all of this material in PDF, all of it word searchable, and um, they never sent me a bill, which um, I didn't follow up with them on and, and ask them if they <laughs> wanted to send me a bill. I have to confess uh, that, but uh, that was a stroke of good Now, luck. for the people listening, and I hope, there certainly are these several thousands worldwide tune into this program or download it on podcast. Uh, most of them would not have your financial resources. Uh, now, for example, when I did my my first book, which uh, uh, wasn't a true crime book, but it required a great deal of research, I had to go to the uh, uh, Boston Morgan, uh, can't even say it without stumbling, uh, the Memorial Library at Boston University. Uh, and go through all the boxes there, which was the career of uh, the author Leslie Charteris. We didn't have that then. Uh, there was no scan, get the OCR. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was all new stuff. And uh, being as I'm brain damaged, for real, uh, when it comes to any sort of paperwork, 
I'm not the king of organization. If I drop them on the floor, I need someone to help me to figure out how to pick them up. Uh, so my, my research, uh, my searchable document was the floor of my basement with stacks of paper that were word searchable by my memory of what word I'm looking for as I go through thousands of pages, you know. Uh, but at least I, I could remember what stacks were what, uh, fortunately. But most people can't get stuff, you know, word searchable on a disc. And quite often, when you go to do a case that's controversial, as yours certainly was, and there's roadblocks, sometimes you're not going to get those that information. You're not going to get those boxes. Things will be sealed or uh, things will have gone missing. Or redacted. Redacted. Yeah, I, I once got from a cover page, you know, so-and-so, black mark, black mark, black mark, black mark. I paid for someone's using, a, you know, a wide black marker. <laughs> uh, uh, so that's a whole other issue. But if, if uh, you, the concept still remains the same, you have to get the information. Uh, as Buddha said in 500 B.C., the truth is not a matter of opinion. Truth can be investigated and ascertained. And that's part of your job, is the research to ascertain the facts. It's just essential, and uh, I I doubt there's anybody in the world who's more of an authority on the Simon Templar character than you, Burl. And Maybe Ian Dickerson. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so you know exactly what I'm talking about, and what you said is absolutely true about roadblocks that you encounter. I was dealing with the British government, and the former Irish Republican Army. What kind of cooperation do you think I got from them? Not uh, much. <laughs> and, well, I'll tell you, the former IRA was a lot easier to deal with than the British government. Uh, the British government was just absolutely impossible. Uh, you know, FOIA requests and things like that were routinely responded to with a letter that said, you know, national security, there's nothing we can give you. Um, the former IRA, I mean, they're mostly not interested in talking to you with a few exceptions. Jerry Kelly sat down with me. He was one of the lead organizers of the escape, which is discussed in the book Above the Ground, and he's now part of the government in Northern Ireland. Now, he has the benefit of one of these letters from the British Crown, the so-called RPM, Royal Prerogative of Mercy, that basically says, you know, whatever sins you've committed in the past are forgiven. We're not looking for you. Somewhat freely. Um, but many others uh, feel that they can't. And if you get in front of one of those guys and they speak candidly to you, why, that's a great fortune indeed that, that you've stumbled into. And speaking of stumbling into, I mean, I some of the best material that I was able to use in my book, I found completely by accident and not even the result of any effort on my part. Uh, Alan Miles, the son of the murder victim, had in his possession a secret government report that had been prepared um, in 2012 by the historical inquiries team of the Northern Ireland government that was set up to try to supply grieving loved ones and family members uh, victims of troubles, murders, with new data so that they could know a little bit more about why and how their father or son or brother had been killed. And Alan Miles sent me this report, which had new exculpatory evidence in it, uh, 
Hmm. without telling me he was going to do it and without me even knowing that the document existed in the first place. Wow. Like, had her dumped in your lap or, you know, a winning lap, finding it under your car or something hmm. like that. And uh, so I, I think it's important for any researcher to be open to what you don't know. Um, you don't know what you don't know. You have a research plan, you have a spreadsheet, you think you know who all the witnesses are and all the places you have to go to hunt down documents, but being open to surprises and then adapting to them and capitalizing on them was important for me, and, and I think it's important for any nonfiction writer. Yeah, the thing about the, the roadblocks is that I think, uh, every, every true crime writer in the universe uh, has encountered it sooner or later or has even stopped them from going forward on a project, which I had happened. I was investigating a case in Kansas and discovered that under the Freedom of Information, you petitioned uh, in Kansas for a police report, you get the cover sheet. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Anything beyond that is up to the uh, discretion of the local police chief and whether they like you or not. Uh, in Spokane, when I wrote about the Spokane serial killer, Robert Lee, Lee H. Jr., and I went there and met with the Homicide Task Force, they were mad at me when I, before I walked in the door. And that was because, uh, what's his name, uh, from the O.J. Simpson case, the, the cop, what was his name? Oh, uh, Furman. Mark yeah, Furman. Mark Furman had moved to Spokane and was doing a true crime radio show where he was second-guessing the cops causing all sorts of problems with the investigation, uh, being very critical of them, and interfering with the case. And so then here I show up, and they're taking all their animosity towards Furman and focusing it on me. I had to give them a legal signed document of things I wouldn't do and things I would do because they were so pissed off at him. Uh, as it turned out, the head of the Homicide Task Force, who later ran for sheriff, uh, he and I hit it off famously, and uh, he was able to kind of run run defense, or whatever, uh, to help clear up uh, the roadblocks for the rest of the homicide task force, and proved an absolutely uh, valuable source. Uh, as you're saying, sometimes you you get to hit hit it off well with somebody who gets it, who understands, you know, that you're ethical and what you're trying to do is just get to the truth and tell the true story, and they'll help you because it's in their best interest to do so. So you, th you came up with a research plan, and then you kept a spreadsheet of contacts with how they fit into the puzzle of the story. Once you started the actual research, how much of that plan st uh, held together? When it came to witnesses in Northern Ireland, maybe 30% of it. In other words, I got to actually talk to 30% of the people that I... I wish I could talk to. Some of them had died. Some of them just wouldn't talk at all. Um, you know, some of them were unconcerned, knew where they were, wasn't going to tell me where they were. As far as documents, I think I got 80 to 90% of what I was after. A lot of it was in the form of court records that uh, were made available to me by lawyers on both sides of the Atlantic. Secondary sources of research, I mean, there were books that I, I felt I needed to get my hands on. Uh, I had research assistants to do that. Some of it I did myself. Um, so averaging all that out, I, I guess I couldn't give you an exact percentage. But the ATT report changed a lot of that. That wasn't on the spreadsheet because nobody 
knew, knew that knew it existed, yeah. except for Alan Miles and the Northern Ireland government, and what um, created the final part, or the raw material for the final part of the book, which was the appeal, uh, which ran from 2017 to 2020, in the Northern Ireland Court of Appeal, in which the underlying murder conviction was challenged based on this new exculpatory evidence that had been hidden by the Crown prosecutors uh, in the I think it's easy to get down, and maybe I'm more prone to it than other people, I don't know, but when you run into these roadblocks, you know, there was more than one time when I despaired of ever finishing the thing, you know. Am I ever going to finish this? Am I going to run out of time? Am I going to run out of money? And, um, you know, thank goodness I I didn't, and I, I had really great sources of support, a little kitchen cabinet of of writers who would give me encouragement when I went to them and said, look, I really feel like I'm running into a, a brick wall here. I, I don't know what to do and what's your advice? And they would give it to me. And then, you know, family and friends, the love and support you get from them is very important. So if you're the kind of person that can get discouraged at chronically being told no and derailed, uh, that, that's very important. Yeah, your process. A, a victorious attitude. Yes, you, you have to. You have to embrace failure. Yeah, and and uh, take it as a positive and creative outlet. Because usually, if uh, say if the door slams in your face, you find an open window. Uh, I've had uh, people ask me about uh, my career in software. Now, what's the most important thing? And I tell them, you have to be able to accept that you're going to fail every time until the last time. Yeah, when I, when you're done, yeah. but it's a failure up. Yeah, you fail upward, kind of like uh, the Peter Principle. In in my case, you fail until a level of success. Yeah, you stop failing on that last. Right, because the last one. Oh yeah, okay. This is yeah. everyone's happy now. Yeah, everyone's happy the, now. The, the last one is the, the successful code. That oh, it's the last one. The app. when I did my first serious true crime book, Murder in the Family, uh, I was. Uh, at BoucherCon, which actually is coming up in San Diego, uh, Seattle, I think it was. And I was on a bus with Gary C. King, the true crime author, brilliant fellow. And he looked at me seriously. He says, this is this your first series? I've already written one rather amusing one called Bad Overboard. He says, are you doing a, he says, that's a hell of a case. He says, let me give you one important piece of advice. Be prepared to cry a lot. <laughs> And that hadn't occurred to me. And he says, because you're going to be talking to the family, you know, of victims, you know, the, the wife of the murdered man or the, the husband of the murdered woman or the, the three little, two little kids that were brutally murdered. And they're going to take their emotions if they're willing to talk to you and they're going to project onto you something of the case in a way that emotionally links so they feel that they can go ahead and talk to you. They connect. They connect. And in that connection, their pain, their perception, you're going to pick up, you know, you're going to get that because of the connection. And he says, which is good for the standpoint is you don't lose sight of why you're doing this because you're going for the truth and you're speaking on behalf of those who can't speak speak on their own and you become their voice. Uh, or the wrongfully, the voice of the wrongfully accused. And so uh, I had the picture of, uh, on that case, of the two little girls that were murdered, scotch taped to my computer. 
So every time I worked on the book, I could look up and see their, their two faces looking at me. So you was right. Be prepared to cry a lot. And uh, also, you have to do just the opposite. You know, you've got to kind of put up a little bit of that wall and go into your professional mode as a researcher or as a writer. And be as objective. And as be as objective and tell the story, your long-term teases, your short-term teases, your, you know, your chapter transitions, you know, all that stuff. And we'll get to that when we talk about how you edited your, got your book from 200000 down to 100000 But people will ask sometimes, you know, were you tempted to do this as a fiction, like a fiction novel uh, based on a true story, or did you just decide to do the real true story with the real names? Well, that was suggested to me uh, by more than one person, and I thought it was, I instinctively reacted to it as a lousy idea. I thought, you know, tell the reader the true story. Tell what actually happened. Some people are going to be angry. Uh, some people are, you know, going to feel exposed. And, you know, that's tough. Um, I do know a writer who uh, went to federal prison. He came out. He wanted to write a book about his experiences. His wife was against it. She felt that um, if he wrote something about one of his fellow prisoners and that fellow prisoner objected to it, you know, maybe that person would seek vengeance or something. So why not write it as a novel instead, inspired by the real story? And I said, uh, don't do it, man. Tell, write what really happens. Isn't that a hell of a lot more interesting than fabricating a tale, you know, that isn't going to have the ring of truth about it. And he went ahead and did it that way, and um, I think it might have book if uh, he had just written yeah. the, the true story. True but, story. Um, you know, it's an interesting coincidence, Pearl, that you mentioned about the picture of the two little girls that you taped up. You know, for the last several years, I've had a photo tacked up to my tack board in my home office alongside my monitor, and it's of Albert Miles and his wife, Florence. They're on vacation in England in 1976. Albert Miles, of course, was the victim of the murder that got pinned on Kevin Berryard. And I thought I had to have that photo in front of me every day to remember that, you know, this man was killed in front of his wife and son. And I owed it to them to find out who did it and tell the story in the most um, independent and objective and good way that I could. Wow, it's interesting. You just reminded me of something that I kind of forgot about or blocked out. When the reviews first came out uh, of Murder in the Family, which is a true crime book, someone wrote a scathing negative review and then two weeks later wrote rescinding their previous review. It was someone who was very emotionally involved in the story, knew the victims, knew everything, and it was a horrifying crime. And she says, I got to apologize to the author. No, he didn't do the horrifying crime. I was reacting to the horrifying crime, not the book. And the book is factual. It's, you know, it tells the truth. She says, so I want to apologize. Which I thought was really, that really touched my heart. You know, much better than the trolls who say, I seldom write reviews, but this book is so terrible, I couldn't even finish it. And then you do a search to see what other reviews they've ever written. And they all start off the same. I've never written a review before. It's supposed to be the information age. But the disinformation will come up a lot higher in your research. Usually you can tell, however, if you're a discriminating reader. But, I mean, I've, I've read things that have been part of international conspiracies. 
of my brother being uh, responsible for World War III, which is possible, he admitted that, that can be written about you or about uh, uh, Kevin Barry Art or the crime or the trial that are complete fiction, but they'll be posted as if they were real. And you sometimes, and people quite often don't know how to tell, is this a BS post? You know, how do I verify this? Or will they keep going until they get to some very reliable, reputable source? It's a real problem, uh, and you guys, uh, I think, have thought about it much more deeply than I have. But, you know, we have fellow countrymen and women that sincerely believe that there's a cabal of, you know, uh, child sex traffickers that are running the government. Yeah. You know, the QAnon folks. And, um, you know, maybe they have millions of of adherents that, that sincerely believe this to be the truth. There are other groups of people that believe that our government, the executive branch of our government, plotted and executed the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, you know. And, um, well, according you know, to the Kennedy to murder, you know, there, there are other examples. And it is ironic that we live in an age when data is more freely accessible to ordinary folks than it's ever been. And yet the volume of fabricated information and disinformation seems to be greater than ever. Now, when you started to write this, did you have a contract or were you going to pitch it when you had it all done? You mean a publishing contract? Yeah. I did not at the time. Uh, smartly or dumbly, I decided I wanted to write the manuscript before I tried to sell it. I I didn't want to try shopping a treatment around and, and then wait for somebody to say, yeah, I'm interested, and then take that as my signal to get going. I wanted to create something good and then see if I could sell it. Uh, somehow get a TV or film deal with money as an added bonus. You know, get an option. Even option money, if they give you money, they have, to, they have to give you at least a dollar to option, you know, to reserve the rights to keep you from selling it to somebody else. The thing about this Kindle thing that I'm a little, on the legal side, I'm not so sure about, is it's always been that if your book goes out of print for five years, you get the rights back and you can resell it to another publisher. Now, I wonder with Kindle, where it's not actually in print, except electronically, that it's available forever and you never get the rights back. And then- Print-on-demand totally revolutionized or altered forever the publishing industry. We're talking to Dan Lawton, a well-known uh, attorney who uh, is back in San Diego warning other people to stay out of the true crime industry <laughs> unless they have a whole lot of nerve and uh, are dedicated. Well, there's a certain amount of passion involved. As Ron Chepsik, uh, another frequent guest on the show, uh, and I were talking the other night, that is... For people who love research, there's something about a case that just excites you, that you just get this, you know, feeling, physical feeling, psychological, emotional, where you know you want to research and get into this and find out absolutely everything and ride that train wherever it's going. And sometimes that can be dangerous. Now, did it ever occur to you that maybe someone from the British government would decide that you're a nice target in case this book comes out? I never gave it a thought, but Kevin Barry went on a vacation in Hawaii um, a couple of years ago when um, the first draft of my manuscript was done. And they were coming back from Maui, Kevin Barry and his wife and their two teenage kids. 
and um, they were pulled out of the line by TSA at the airport and exhaustively searched. I mean, for several hours and more than once uh, after they got through, you know, at the security station, walked through the concourse and got out to the gate, it happened again. And, you know, they were undressed. The ki- I mean, these were kids. Every article taken out of their carry-ons, you know, went on for several hours. They almost missed their flight. And they were allowed to go home. They barely made their flight home, but the kids were quite upset about it, and so was Kevin Barry Hart. And um, he said to me, you know, how could this not have been the result of someone in the right. government wanting to make my life more difficult, maybe hoping to find some piece of contraband, something they could use against me. And I had a good friend who, until pretty recently, had been um, a senior member of uh, Comey's FBI, and I spoke to him about it in private, and uh, he got back to me and he said, this definitely came from the Brits. Um, Well, they've done worse than that in in the past, uh, but I was never worried about anything like that. Uh, but Kevin Barry Art was extremely worried as we went along through the process of, uh, of this project together, interviewing him and working on my manuscript, um, that somebody in Northern Ireland might read an unflattering passage, a passage that made them look bad or referred to them as uh, having committed a murder or something else really bad and would take offense to it. And... Uh, not come over here and do anything about it, but, um, you know, maybe do something else uh, really unpleasant. And that was a conversation that we had many times and continued to have up until last month, right before the, the book came out. The two killers uh, are identified in the book. There was uh, a pair of gunmen who killed Albert Miles, and they are both identified in the book. And are they alive? The reader will have to, I think, well, I'll spoil it, I guess. Spoiler alert, uh, they are not alive today. Okay. So then... One of them uh, died only recently. That would would be the most major issue, uh, if they were still hanging around. Yeah. Yeah. But they've got families and uh, and friends that are still around. You know, it's amazing, uh, talking about the disinformation, especially the Pizzagate thing about, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton running a a sex slave operation out of a pizza parlor basement. You know, something so absurd. And this is that guy who believed it and went to that pizza parlor, which didn't even have a basement. What, did he kill three people? That's right. I mean, that is just horrifying. And then there's this fellow, I think I mentioned this, other you or someone else the other day, that he was paid 10000 I think it was more than that, to come up with a story so absurd that if you applied your logical brain to it, you'd go, this has got to be a joke. And it was Bill Gates and George Soros conspiring together and paying the people in advance to go to Seattle uh, and be protesters at the World uh, Trade Organization. The guy even planted a false uh, ad uh, in the paper saying, uh, Want to go to Seattle? <laughs> Contact me. Yeah, yeah two I'm, I'm really pissed at this because I haven't been reimbursed yet. No, you haven't been reimbursed. And he, he knew that this story was so absurd that if you thought about it for more than two seconds, in a, an irrational train of thought, you go, this is logistically impossible and, and totally, totally bizarre. And uh, he wanted to show in an interview, the guy lives here in L.A., 
So I wanted to show how stupid these people were. Well, unfortunately, he did. There's a lot of stupid people out there. Yes. And in fact... Well, what I, did, uh, did uh, P.T. Barnum say? And, uh, Sucker born every there's minute. There's one born every minute. Yeah. There's, there's, a, what is, uh, there's a, 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 famous, there's a famous... P.T. Barnum said, there's a ticket for every... Sucker in a seed for something like that. There, uh, there's a, um, a a legend that uh, a young man went to P.T. Barnum and convinced him to loan him a large sum of money. Uh, let's just say $25,000 of money. And he was supposed to come back in three months because they was going to make a lot of money. And he expected that this kid was going to upscound and the money was gone. The young man comes back at the end of that three months, hands him the money back. And he's astounded. He goes, well, what happened? He goes, well, it didn't work out, but at least I got the money back. Yeah. What the young man did was put it in the bank, get the interest, and keep the interest. <laughs> Here's the deal. We're going to give you a million dollars to safeguard. And at the end of X amount of time, you give, simply give the money back. All you have to do is just going to be in your name. It's going to be sitting in the bank. The deal is you don't touch it and you give it back at the end of whatever it is, a year. And a percentage of the people gave themselves short-term loans out of the money, you know, and then put it back. And then those that did what they were agreed to do, how many people actually stole the money? There's a larger percentage gave themselves short-term loans, which was against the agreement also. And the smaller percentage did exactly what they agreed to do, which is just pretend it wasn't there, the million dollars wasn't there, and then... Yeah, and you make, you make 10, 15 grand. Yeah, and uh, uh, that was kind of disheartening. Well, <laughs> well the, uh, there's, there's um, a number, any number of um, team-building exercises from my career where the solution to the team-building challenge is cooperation as opposed to individual accomplishment and advancement. You're trying to advance the entire enterprise, not just yourself. And, and, and all the times I've gone through those kinds of, of uh, exercises, to get people individual success for the success of the whole, for everyone involved, is really difficult. Yeah. There was a, my daughter uh, was in the semiconductor industry as a data analysis uh, expert and advisor. And came from that culture of you have a team leader and then you have the team. And the whole idea is you advance the entire team. If something goes wrong, the team leader takes the bullet. They stand up and say, it's all my fault. You protect the team and the team protects well, the that's, leader. That's the quality. That's how you identify a truly qual a quality leader. And that's the individual that shields you from the BS over. Right. And, and allows you to go just do So she was totally into that, or is totally into that still, of course. But she left the semiconductor company that she worked for and went to work for Dell. And assuming they had the same culture, they didn't no. and don't, and not at all. It was, watch your back. Yes, Microsoft <laughs> has the same kind of culture. And it, which is the positive? Culture, yes. The it's, positive? It, no, it's, it's succeed or die. Oh, she was shocked that... That whole concept of advancing the team and getting the project, etc., was irrelevant. It was. You know. hmm. I, I, I to get. I have a couple of yes. all the data collection, and you actually put the book together. Um, how do you? How did you proceed? I thought I needed a day routine, 
uh, so my routine was to, you know, eat breakfast in the morning and go downtown's office. And um, I had whiteboards up on the walls down there, and I had all my data. And I started out without any experience in doing it before, and the closest thing that I had was the model of practicing law, doing litigation. I had timesheets that I filled out every day. I mean, sort of compulsively, it's a little silly when you think of it. I mean, you know, keeping timesheets when you're writing a book, like you're billing clients for your time, like you're working on cases. But I felt I, maybe there was a comfort level there. It was something to keep me accountable. Um, there were days that it didn't feel like it was flowing very well. Um, I, I tried to outline the story on the whiteboard to order it, to create sections, and then um, to write the sections. And again, uh, the kitchen cabinet, the little group of writers that were successful that kind of counseled me, you know, had some personal experiences to share. Uh, one of them, whose name you would recognize, I asked, you know, what's your method? What's your daily routine? And uh, he explained it to me, and he said, you know, sometimes I drink scotch when I'm, <laughs> when I'm writing. You know, he's a nonfiction writer. Yeah. And uh, I listen to rock and roll music. You know, I listen to Pink Floyd. And um, I just thought, well, that works for him because he's highly successful. But there's no way that that would work for me. I, I've always I need found quiet, that. and I need whiteboards, and uh, you know, right. that's what I felt I needed. And everybody knows what works for them, and yeah. that's what worked for me. Uh, what I've worked, always found what worked for me for a long time was picking the appropriate music. Like this guy, Pink Floyd, sometimes there would be one song or one album or a selection of songs like a playlist that fit the emotional mood I wanted to write that particular book, and that's all I would listen to when writing the book. Right. Keep me, you know, focused in that emotional mm -hmm. connection. So, uh, at what point did you start thinking about uh, a publisher? I finished the first draft of the manuscript in about August of 2019, and I wanted to go for a big five publisher. Of course, everybody wants the big five traditional publisher, or a lot of people do. I, I wanted that. And um, I wanted the best agent I could find, so I started creating... Uh, a spreadsheet of agents that I thought would be a good fit for me. There are online lists of, of agents by genre, by category. So uh, I used that as a resource. And I also went into bookstores, and I went to the section of the bookstore that had books that I thought most closely resembled my story, you know, nonfiction, true crime, uh, Irish history, courtroom drama. And I would go to the acknowledgments section because the writer always thanks the agent and the agency and the acknowledgments along with their you know children and uh, wives and husbands and so forth and i made a list of agents from those acknowledgment sections and then i started querying them and when i finally had the good fortune to get an agent chip mcgregor um you know he said swing for the fences let's go for the biggest best publisher we can find I wound up with Wild Blue Press. They're a small publisher out of um, out of Denver, Colorado, and they specialize in true crime. And um, there was another big publisher that also offered it, Roman and Littlefield. And uh, you know, it came down to those two. And in the end, I felt that 
you know, despite the fact that Roman Littlefield was big and national and had all this distribution, they didn't seem as writer-friendly uh, as Wild Blue did. Wild Blue seemed really interested in having a partnership-type relationship. They seemed uh, very available. You know, Michael Cordova and Steve Jackson would get on the phone with me, and uh, I, I wanted a publisher I could feel comfortable with, and in the end, that was Wild Blue Press. Yeah, they, uh, you're talking to other writers, what you do. Yeah, that makes a big difference. Uh, the whole attitude. And that, I, I was with one of the big publishing houses, and they were lo- lowering down how much they paid considerably. And the royalty rates considerably. And what they wanted from you, then considerably. Uh, although they were, the executive editor was wonderful to work with, uh, Wild Blue... From an emotional standpoint and ease of operation, uh, it's spectacular, and that's why I've, I've been with them. But, Dan, thanks for coming back to talk to us. I appreciate it. Yeah, that's it. You'll learn from a master class today, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>